0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's word now to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. I want to add my greeting to that of Mark's. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful that you've chosen to come and worship the Lord. Our goal is to be guided by the Word of God, whether it's in our songs. I mean, our our worship opens with God speaking, and we respond in praise to Him. And every step of our liturgy is aiming at allowing the Word of God to inform the people of God. And so that's what we're going to do now. In Revelation chapter 10, if, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you don't have one on your phone, there should be a hardback black one in the chairs around you. We would love for you to see God's Word. And what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to read the text that we're going to focus on today, and then I will go through it one section at a time, trying to explain and apply this passage to our hearts and lives. So Revelation 10, uh, by the way, if you don't know, Revelation is the last book in the book, Uh, Revelation chapter 10 in verse 1, and this is John writing under the inspiration of God. He says this to us, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we try to understand it more? Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the gathering of your people today to submit to your word, whether it's being read or preached or sung or simply declared over us, calling us to worship you. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Like Cody said, this is you. This is your voice When we read God's word, we hear your voice. And so we want to understand it. We want to know you better because of it. And we want to be able to respond in a way that is obedient to what we see. And so would you give us understanding? Would you allow me to explain it in a way that is consistent with what we see throughout the scriptures? And would you allow us to receive it so that we can go forth into this world faithfully, encouraged and empowered by the truth? So Lord, we ask, I ask that you would accomplish your purpose in the preaching and teaching and explanation of your word, that you would have your way with us, be glorified in our response, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we have studied the, the book of the Revelation, we are now in our 26th week, and we, are, we have come to a point uh, that is a little bit of a break from the flow of the narrative that we have been studying. We're in the section of the Revelation where we see a series of judgments, things that the the Revelation itself calls plagues. And these plagues are being poured out as judgments from God against the sin of the unbelieving world. And we're right in the middle of the second series of these judgments. We looked in chapters 6 and 7, we looked at the seven seals. Now we're looking at the seven trumpets. We're still to come. We're going to study the seven bowls. But there's this little break that we're seeing right here. Because as we've been studying the fifth and the sixth trumpets, as those trumpets have sounded over the last two weeks, we have seen that within the providence of God, within God's plan for the world, he has chosen to pour out his judgment upon the unbelieving world by removing the barriers that he has placed upon the spiritual forces of darkness. These forces of darkness have been unleashed to accomplish God's Purpose. They are coercing humanity into believing lies about the nature of reality. We see that happening in our world today. We simply see lies being believed, and yet the scriptures tell us that behind those lies is a spiritual dimension that we can't see with our eyes, and yet the Word of God reveals it to us. These unbel- I mean these these forces of darkness are. Um, conveying lies to the unbelieving world. They're lying about the nature of what is right and what is wrong. Their, their lies fuel human anger and even propel nations to war. And that's what we've been learning about in the last two weeks. In, in 1920, as Europe was reeling from what was known then as the Great War, what we know as World War One, and Uh, Leninist, Marxist, Bolshevism was rising in Russia. An Irish poet by the name of William Butler Yeats he penned a poem uh, talking about the foreboding sense of Western civilization's meltdown, and the title of the work was "The Second Coming." Here's what he said about it: "Things fall apart. The center cannot hold." Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. What Yeats is trying to describe in the gift that God had given him was what it looked like in his day when the judgment of God was unleashed into humanity. When evil is everywhere and the world is ripe for judgment, according to what we see in the scriptures, one of the questions that we should ask, and one of the questions that was on the mind of the original readers of this revelation, is what does God have planned for his people? What role will the church play when the judgment of God is unleashed upon the world? What role does God have for the church? Are we going to be swept away, like Yates says, by the blood-dimmed tide? Are we just to hide away until the end comes? Or does our sovereign Savior have a mission that we must attend to? Revelation chapters 10 and 11 represent a pause in the narrative of the seven trumpets. The flow of the story shifts away from from the blowing of the trumpets and what those trumpets entail, and it shifts away, and it puts the focus on something else. God pushes pause on his revelation of the unfolding judgments on the world, and he, he focuses his attention upon the church, and he says to the church, this is what I have for you. So that's what Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11 are all about. In Revelation chapter 10, John sees a new vision. He's been seeing series of visions. He sees a completely new vision, and this vision is of a glorious angel descending from heaven. And this mighty angel brings with him a little scroll. And John is commanded to eat the scroll. And the meaning of these strange things, well, that's meant to give direction and comfort to the church. And that's the point of the sermon today. What is the purpose of these strange symbols of the mighty angel and the little scroll? Right. So if you're taking notes, first thing we're going to try to understand is who is this mighty angel? Now, i have ask you to keep your Bibles open. Let's look back at the text, and we'll just begin to work our way through it. Look at verse 1. John says, Then I saw... Another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, I want you to notice something. If, if you've been with us in this study, you should be able to notice that the vantage point of this vision has shifted from where John was in the other series of visions. Specifically, when the trumpets are being blown, John is in heaven, and he's looking down upon earth, and he's seeing those trumpets blown, and he's seeing what begins to take place on earth as the trumpet is blown. Well, here the vantage point has changed. John is no longer in heaven looking down upon earth. He's on earth looking up into heaven and he sees this mighty angel coming down. And the change of focus in the vision, the change of location, means that something different has happened. There's a break in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And if you've been studying with us, and you know that when we got to the sixth seal, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was also a break. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, is an indication that the end has come. And it's going to repeat itself. We're going to see it over and over. So right before that happens, Jesus pushes pause and he says, oh, by the way, church, here's what I have for you. When we were studying the seals, what what took place there is that we had seen the calamity on earth as a result of the four horsemen who had been, been unleashed. The, the martyrs had begun to cry out, the judgment of God had begun, begun to unfold, and God pushed Pauls, and then he pulled the church aside, and then he explained that he had sent his seal upon the church so that they would be protected from the judgment. Do y'all remember that? Some of you do. And then he got back to the seventh seal, and then the story moved on. Well, here in chapter 10, we see the scene shift away from the demonic forces that are being unleashed on the earth, and the scene shifts over to the commissioning of John as a prophet. And his commissioning also involves the church. And what Jesus is doing here, what the Lord is doing in this, is he's showing John and the church, what is your responsibility in the midst of the judgment that's unfolding on the earth? In both cases, God pushes pause on world affairs to give specific instruction and attention to his people. That's how the the book of the Revelation unfolds for us. So chapters 10 and 11 are that little pause, that parenthesis in the middle of everything that's happening. But remember what the original question was. Who is this mighty angel that has come in this new vision? Who is this angel described as one who is coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, with face shining like the sun, and legs like pillars of fire with a scroll in his hand. Who is this mighty angel? Is this another demonic pawn in the unfolding of God's judgment like we've seen in the others? Or does he occupy a more glorious position? Now from the description alone, we, we can recognize that this being is different from the description of the locusts with the hair and the teeth like lions or the chimera like horses with serpent tails, right? We, we can see very clearly that those images that we've studied the last few weeks, they're meant to be uh, fearsome, they're meant to be scary even, they're, they're picturing demonic forces to us. This image is very different. This being is not like those beings. And close inspection reveals that this mighty angel is described to us in seven different attributes. I smile when I say that because we've seen the number seven come up over and over again. So let's think about these seven different attributes and try to determine who this angel is and what his importance is in the story. First, we learn that he is mighty. Mighty simply means that he is strong, he's powerful, and that's visibly representative in his person descending from heaven. Second, he comes down from heaven. The idea or the language is that he is descending from heaven. And you might remember when the fifth seal was blown, John saw a star that had fallen from heaven. The language is very different. The, the angel descending from heaven in a cloud, and the star that had fallen from heaven, very different depictions. One is clearly demonic, the other is not. Third, this being is clothed with a cloud. He's coming down out of heaven, wrapped in a cloud. That should have some connotation to our minds. Fourth, he has a rainbow upon his head. And that rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness. I know that our world wants to take the rainbow and try to make it mean something else, some some sinful notion of pride, and yet, biblically speaking, this is a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness. Five, His face shines like the sun, with the intensity of the sun. Sixth, his feet and legs are like pillars of burning fire. And then uh, seventh, and finally he holds in his hand an open scroll. Now this description is nothing like the demonic beings that we've seen. This descending angel is extraordinary. He is glorious, he is majestic, and he's unlike any other angel described in this book. And that's (laughs) It's, it's, it's important for us to understand. This angel is given the attributes that are only used to describe God in the Old Testament or God and Christ in the New Testament. And for these reasons, I believe that it is right to understand that this mighty angel is either a reference to Christ himself or a reference to the angel of the Lord or what we might describe as the angel of Of Yahweh, which we read about in the Old Testament. The angel of Yahweh shows up all over the Old Testament. When we read it, we read it the angel of the Lord, and Lord is all letters are capitalized because that's the name of God was not referenced in that way, it was substituted. But we see the angel of the Lord show up all over the Old Testament as a physical being that men and women could see, could touch. Could, could spend time with, and this being was associated with, but distinct from, the immaterial voice of God that came from heaven. If you've ever read the Old Testament and you've seen those instances where God speaks from heaven, and then there's this mysterious being that exists on earth, a physical-like being, that's usually a reference to the angel of the Lord the angel of Yahweh. We see the angel of Yahweh in Genesis. He comes and he appears to Abraham and to Sarah. Later on, he wrestles with Jacob. In Exodus, the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, because there's not only a voice that speaks, but there's also a being that is present. In Judges, the angel of Yahweh guided the leaders of Israel, and he even spoke to Gideon when his time came to rule. So all over the Old Testament, we see this picture of the angel of Yahweh. It's not just another created being. It's an angel specifically closely associated with God himself. Many would call this a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ himself. And if that's too theological for you, I'm not going to apologize. You came to church. But I do believe that this being has an even more specific identity than just that. The similarities between this vision in Revelation 10 and the picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 are remarkable. They both come down from heaven in a cloud. Both of them have faces that shine like the sun. Both of them have feet that are burning like bronze or like fire, and their voices are both sounding like roaring. I believe that this vision is a reference to Jesus, who has interrupted the trumpet judgments with a message for the church. By the way, the word angel, generally translated, means messenger. And John goes on to tell us that this mighty angel that has descended, he has a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, we've already seen a scroll, and we've already seen a scroll in the hand of Jesus. You, you'll remember this all the way back in Revelation 5. God the Father sitting upon the throne has a scroll in his hand and no one is worthy to open it until the Lamb who is slain comes forward. The Son of God takes the scroll and he opens the seals and we saw the seal judgments come from that. This angel that descends with a scroll in his hand should draw our attention back to that picture. And by the way, the scroll is now open. Jesus opened the scroll. But he has his left foot in one area of creation and his right foot in another area of creation. What does this mean? The fact that his right foot and his left foot span the earth and the sea indicate that this being has dominion over the whole earth. Do you remember in the Old Testament when we read about the earth being the footstool of God? This is a reference to similar things. The fact that his feet are like pillars of fire and he is clothed with clouds is most likely a reference back to the Lord leading Israel as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in the Exodus as we've seen these Old Testament images and references coming up over and over and over again. And these references are intended by the church in the midst of suffering. Think about this. The New Testament church, in the time when they're reading this for the, for the first time, they're in the midst of persecution, and they're in the midst of suffering, and they see this vision, and they're being reminded that God is with them. That the one who rules over creation is with them. And he's come down not only to comfort them, but he's come down just like God did in in the Exodus. He's come down to lead his people through the judgments that are unfolding around them. So this would have been a comfort to the church. But how is he supposed to lead them? If that's the image and that's the symbol and what we're supposed to take from it, how does this mighty angel, how does Jesus lead the church during this time? Well, part of the answer is found in the fact that he has this little scroll in his hand. This little scroll refers to the revealed word of God, and the angel wants us to be nourished by the scroll, and he wants us to proclaim the scroll's message to the world. See, John's not the only one being commissioned here. The little scroll is small enough for John to swallow, but the size doesn't diminish the impact or importance of the scroll. This scroll is from heaven, and it represents the plan of God for the salvation of his people as well as for the judgment of the wicked. This little scroll contains the message that John is commanded to proclaim. That's why he's supposed to eat it, and then he's supposed to prophesy to the nations. He consumes it and prophesies to peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This scroll contains the message that we are to proclaim to the world during the church age, and this message is the same message that the Lord preached during his time on earth. And we can hear a summary of that in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, where the Lord Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's the message. The message of salvation for God's people and judgment for those who reject him. In other words, we have been sealed by God, right? I'm I'm trying to convey all that we've learned from all the way back in Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 10. We have been sealed by God, protected from the judgment that he is unleashing, so that we might bear witness to Christ and his gospel while we endure persecution from the world that we are called to evangelize. And notice in this image that God doesn't come and remove the church from the world. I've told you before, that's not in the Revelation. He leaves us here purposefully, intentionally, and he protects us so that we can accomplish his purpose, which is to speak the truth to the world see, John is being commissioned by Christ to take the good news of salvation in, by faith in Christ to, and to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. And John is being persecuted for that. This whole vision started because John is on the island of Patmos because he's been exiled there. But God's not done with John. John still has more to say. God still has more to reveal to him. And God's not done with the church either. The same calling to take the Word of God, to proclaim it to the nations, it still rests upon the church's shoulders today, and that's us. We are called to proclaim the truth of God to the world, to our neighbors, both in season and out of season. And what that means is whether it's popular or not, whether people want to hear it or not. And as we do this, the the revelation makes clear that persecution will come, and not just the revelation, will be read earlier in 2 Peter. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution will come as we proclaim the truth. But through it all, God is going to protect his people, and we will attend to the mission he's called us to. That's a big part of what this vision is all about. Just reminding the church that we are called, like, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, to preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. Yet, to those who are called, it is the power and wisdom of God. That's what we're called to do. So as the judgment of God falls around us and the church begins to ask, Lord, what is our role in this season? Christ interrupts the narrative to remind us that our calling hasn't changed. That make sense? Okay, that's just the first part. And then we have this weird little thing here about the, the the lion roaring, and then the seven thunders responded. What is the mystery of the seven thunders? Look back at verse three. And the angel called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John says, I was about to write it down, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And this is weird, okay? I mean, this is, God's revealing all these amazing things to us, and then all of a sudden we see something, or John sees something, and God says, don't write that part down. But why did you give us any of that? Why did you tell us anything about it and then say, no, what's, what is going on here? Well, first, let's start with the fact that this angel, when he comes down, when he begins to speak, it's like a lion roaring. Now, I don't know if you guys have plans this summer, um, but if you have plans to go to the zoo, I know every little kid in here, and most of the big kids too, no trip to the zoo is complete unless you've seen the snakes, right, and you've seen the monkeys, and you've seen the lion, right? we got to see that. Those are the things we want to see. And there's the thing that kind of fuels our excitement is the fear of these beings, right? These, these creatures that God has made, they are fearsome, and yet we still want to see them. We can't leave until we've laid our eyes on the king of beasts. And not only do we want to see the lion, but we desperately want to hear that lion roar, right? Okay, now all of that excitement would completely change if the moment we stand before the cage, the bars disappeared. If the lion is standing there and there's no barrier between us and him, we realize that we're nothing more than a little snack, right? And all of our excitement would turn to absolute fear. And that's something of the picture that we should get when John hears this angel speak, and it sounds like a lion roaring. Oh, by the way, God, when he speaks in Amos, his voice is referred to as a lion roaring as well. So this is another reference back to God speaking. When the lion roars, we know that the king of the jungle has spoken, and he is fierce, and he is fearless, and he rules over his territory with absolute sovereignty. And the angel's proclamation expresses his sovereignty over creation. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared, and in response to his roaring, the seven thunders answer his call. Now, we really don't know what the seven thunders represent, because this is all we get about the seven thunders. The seven thunders seem... when, when I'm teaching through this and, and I'm declaring something I believe in my heart, but I'm not sure in Scripture, you'll hear me, hear me say the words I believe this. right? This is one of those things where I'm not sure about it, but I believe it seems as though these seven thunders in context are some form of divine decree. Most likely it's similar to the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. So this is a this is another thing that God could have done or could have revealed or could have poured out but he chose not to do that. God has chosen to keep this judgment or whatever it is he's chosen to keep it a secret and therefore he forbids John from writing it down. And that makes me think of Deuteronomy 29, which Breck's been pointing out throughout his study, that the, the secret things belong to the Lord, part of His glory, right? He's not, he doesn't have to reveal everything to us. It's a grace and a mercy from Him that He reveals anything to us. God is not obligated to tell us everything that's going to happen. He is not obligated to reveal all the, mer- the, the mysteries that pertain to the end of days. But you have to ask the question, why did God allow John to write it down to tell us that it is without telling us what it's about? Why did he do that? Well, I don't know. Robert Mounts, New Testament Greek scholar, suggests that the thunders, like I said earlier, represent another series of plagues which the Lord could have released on earth, but he chose not to. He decided not to do that. And if that's true, then in context, the next passage, the next verses tell us why God chose not to do that. Look at verse 5. The angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, he declares that there would be no more delay. And that's the key phrase. That there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants. So the call for no more delay seems to indicate that, that God could have poured out another series of seven judgments in these thunders, but he's chosen not to. He doesn't want to delay any longer. He wants to fulfill his purposed termination of world history. He's going to carry on his plan. He's going to pour out his judgment, but he's not going to add another series of plagues. Does that make sense? Now again, I'm not sure if that's what's happening here. That seems to be what's happening here. In context, it seems to fit. And so what we have so far, In this passage, as we've seen this mighty angel of the Lord come down from heaven, we've heard that God is content to allow his plan to play out, and he will inject no further delays to that plan. And then the last thing we see in this passage is the commissioning of John. John is going to receive some renewed marching orders. So look at verse 8 with me. John's renewed role. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is in the open hand of the angel, that is open in the hand of the angel, who's standing on the sea and on the land. So he went, he took the scroll, and and he ate it, and the angel told him, It will will in your stomach be bitter, but in your mouth it will taste sweet like honey. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, I ate it, it was sweet, and then it became bitter. In verse 11, And I was told, You must again prophesy. Now, this is the third time. Repetition is really important in the book of Revelation. This is the third time that John tells us that this angel, that Jesus, if you will, in my interpretation, that he stands upon the earth and the sea. He just keeps saying that. And I referenced earlier that the, the idea of his feet landing on these two things are, are showing his sovereignty, his control, his, this is part of his territory, this is part of his domain. These things belong to him. And there's significance to that, right? We studied a little bit more about the sovereignty of God over world events last week, but here's another picture. That with everything that's going on in the earth, with all the judgments that are unfolding, with all of the demonic activity, with all the wars and battling taking taking place around us, Jesus comes and he is still sovereign over it all. In context, it's a reminder that the star who had fallen from heaven who was given the key to the bottomless pit, he is not sovereign. It is a reminder that the demons that were unleashed with the sixth trumpet to torment unbelievers in the world, they are not sovereign. If we look forward, then we'll see these beings, the great dragon that appears in the heavens and the beast that rises out of the sea and the false prophet who walks on the earth. None of them possess the authority and power of Jesus. Jesus. He rules over all, even them, especially them, and they are simply pawns in his eternal plan. While they have their part to play in his unfolding judgments, he is still sovereign over all, and his church has a part to play before the end comes. And Jesus is reminding John of the role that he is to play in the midst of all of this as he's given the scroll to eat. Now, for those of you who know some of the Old Testament prophets, you you know this is not the first time in the Scriptures that we see uh, a prophet being told to eat a scroll. You can go back and read in Ezekiel chapter 2. The prophet Ezekiel was commanded by God to eat a scroll. It was going to be sweet in his mouth. It was going to be bitter in his stomach. And that's exactly what he did. And, and that whole thing represents this idea that the word of God is going to be given to the prophet and it's going to be sweet to him because it's the word from God. And as the people of God, he loves the word of God. We love the word of God. And so I'll receive that, but when I prophesy, when I preach it, not everyone is going to receive it as sweet. Some of, some of the people that are going to hear the message of God are going to see it as bitter and they're going to reject it. That's the idea behind Ezekiel's commissioning, and the same thing for John here. And again, that extends to us as a church. It is sweet at first, but it will produce bitterness to those who hear it and who are unwilling to repent and trust in Christ. So let me summarize that in two ways. The Word of God is sweet to those who know the grace of God. To those who know and love Christ, to those who have come to receive the truth that we are sinners in line for the judgment of God, rightly deserved, and yet because of what Christ has done in living and dying and offering himself to us as a gift, we can receive that gift by faith and that truth, that word, is sweet to us. Right? Amen? Somebody, maybe? (laughs) The word of God nourishes us. It comforts us, it guides us. It helps us to see the world through the lens of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. It guides and comforts. It also confronts us in our sin, but it doesn't leave us there. Like Cody reminded us, our God is now for us. And he is gracious that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive and he will cleanse. So when the word of God confronts us over our sin, it also welcomes us to come to his side seeking forgiveness again. The word of God is sweet. It molds us to be more like Christ. It helps us to make sense out of our world. It helps us to know our Place within the world, and it gives us hope beyond the boundaries of our world. The Word of God is sweet to the believer. But for those who do not know God's love and do not accept His grace, the Word is bitter. Those who reject the Gospel and seek to live for their own glory, the Word stands in their way. It convicts, it blinds even, The word is narrow and confining. Jesus even said the the way to death is broad, but the way to eternal life is narrow and difficult. And he used that language intentionally. The word of God puts barriers around our lives and helps us to know the truth and how to walk. And to the unbeliever, they just see it as narrow and confining, not as sweet. The Bible knows the secrets of men's hearts, and they don't like it. It challenges their view of the world. It tells the unbeliever that war is coming, and their only hope of escape is to submit to Christ. And they don't want that either. For the unbeliever, the word of God is bitter, and that's the picture that John is receiving. He's going to take in the word of God. He's going to prophesy it, and while it's sweet to him, it's not going to be sweet to everyone who hears. Our role as a church, as the people of God, as representatives of Christ, as the end of the world approaches and until that day, is not to determine the sweetness of the Lord's decrees, nor to remove its bitterness. Did y'all hear me? That's not our job. Our job is to receive His Word and to proclaim it. Okay, so we've looked at a couple of things. Hopefully we have a better understanding of this passage. There's really three major points to this chapter. Jesus is still sovereign over all. No question about it. Jesus is still sovereign over all. God's course of events leading to the end have not been altered. His plan is working according to perfect timing. And our responsibility to preach the gospel hasn't ended. That makes sense? As the world around us continues its downward trajectory, we know what to expect and we know what to do. And since this is not that much different than a lot of the passages we've seen in weeks prior, I'm not going to go back and rehash some of those things as applications. I have two applications for us. Just two. Number one, like John, we must take God's word and consume it for ourselves. Did you know that that's Part of your responsibility as a believer in Christ, one who claims to know and love and serve Jesus, is that you take His Word into your life. You ingest it. And it is sweet to you. Whether you're reading it, or you're listening to it on Audible or some other account, or you're reading it as a family, or you're you're studying it in a study Bible group, or you're, you're doing it on your own, whatever the case might be, as believers, we should be, we must be, taking in God's Word and consuming it. It's not enough for you to have a collection of Bibles on your shelf. You must take it up and read it. Read it and study it so that you know and and meditate on it and memorize it so that you know the stories and the truths and the commands and the principles and they become so etched in your mind that they guide you in life. When you feed on the Word of God, you will become a better theologian We're all theologians, just some of us have our theology more shaped and trained by Scripture, which is to say that some of us are good theologians and some of us are bad theologians. But we all have ideas. Look, if we all claim, yes, we believe in God, the moment I say to you, well, then describe that God to me, and you begin to describe Him, guess what you're doing? You're doing theology. Some of us need to have our theology more tuned and shaped by the Scriptures, not just by the ideas in our own minds, because it's it's very easy for us to create god after our own image rather than to allow him to be revealed in scripture but we don't just read the bible so that we can become better theologians we read the bible so that we can become better neighbors the bible is not just to fill our minds with truth it's to inflame our hearts and our lives so that as we look at the people around us and we interact with the people around us, we understand that they have souls that will never die. That they are men and women and children created in the image of God. And apart from God's grace through the gospel, their, their, their outlook is not good. And we should be moved with compassion as we read the word of God and allow it to mold our minds and our understanding. And we should be moved to speak the truth in love to the world. The purpose of reading and studying the Bible is so that we can know Jesus and be changed so that we can grow to be more like Jesus. So that's our first application. Take God's Word and consume it for yourselves. And then second, like John, we too are called to proclaim God's Word for the hopeful salvation of others. Jesus says this to the disciples in at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is volume one, volume two, right? And he says to them, you are witnesses of these things. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the responsibility falls to you to speak the truth of God in love. We are to preach the truth and call for men and women to turn from their sin to trust in Christ and thereby avoid the wrath that is to come. This is our job. This is why we're still here. We proclaim the truth about man's sin and its incompatibility with God's holiness. We speak about our inability to overcome that sin on our own. All of us at some level, at some stage prior to salvation, we're on our own self-salvation mission. We believed if we did these things, if we acted this way, if we put on a front to the right people, then God would love us and accept us. God is not obligated to do any of those things. The only thing He owes us is the just judgment for our sin. And we have nothing that we can offer to Him as a trophy to say, God, look at why you should love me and save me. We don't come to him with trophies. We come to him with empty hands. Actually, we come to him with stained hands and say, God, all I have that, that is a prerequisite to salvation is the fact that I'm a sinner needing salvation. We speak about our inability to overcome our sin on our own, and then we point to Jesus as the one and the only one who can take away our sin and reconcile us to God. We call upon people to repent and trust in Christ by faith. And we are holding Jesus out before the men of the world, urging them to believe in him as we have believed in him. That's what we do. Some of us do that uh, more practiced than the others, but there's no, there's no professional evangelist. We're all called to be evangelists, to speak the truth in love. See, God has not redeemed us so that we can simply fade into the background keeping our identity a secret, even though that's what the world wants us to do, nor does he intend that we separate out from the world in a sectarian fashion. He calls us to live among the people of the world, understanding that persecution will come from them, and he puts us there for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies in the hope that they were here and receive the truth. While their hearts remain hard This book will remain closed to them, but as the Spirit of God, according to Scripture, as the Spirit of God works to draw them to Jesus, this book will be opened, and they will be nourished by it, and it will be sweet to them, and the Lamb will receive the reward of his suffering. So that's our calling. That's our responsibility. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to be faithful to it. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for these difficult visions and teachings from John, but directly from you. And I thank you that you have given us some measure of understanding, especially the understanding of your sovereignty, the understanding that you are accomplishing your plan according to your purpose, and the understanding that we still have a mission. Help us to be faithful in that, in our, in our, according to our gifts, and, and as we are trained and as we are uh, equipped to do that. Father, help us to love our neighbors rightly and help us to speak the truth in love. And now I pray as we respond, let us sing your praises, let us worship you because you are worthy of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.